0: No one goes through life unscathed. We all suffer loss and heartbreak. Poetry addresses these sorrows and helps us share them. Poems give language and voice to those things that are sometimes incommunicable. Edward Hirsch knows something about this. He's edited the collection, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In the poetry anthology, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart, Edward Hirsch has selected 100 poems from the 19th century to the present and illuminates them for us to show us what they mean and how they help us understand our own lives and losses. I spoke to Edward Hirsch about 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. I feel like this book emerged with impeccable timing. Here we are at a point where vaccines are available, And the world is sort of starting to open up again after this year and all of the different kinds of griefs we have all endured. What is it that A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart, what is it that poetry can do for us now, maybe not necessarily in the wake of it? We're still in the midst of a lot of this, but right now, why do we need the poems now? I mean, I think
1: we're at the I'm hoping we're sort of at the end point of something. We're not entirely in the midst of it, um, but we're we're not completely out of it yet. But my own sense is that. We haven't really reckoned very carefully in America with grief and how to handle grief. And one of the things that gotten has gotten somewhat lost. um, During the pandemic is all those people that were lost this year, all those people who died got caught up somehow in the news, but the griefs of the families and the grief of the people who were left behind and what they lost has not really been accounted for. And that's gonna take a very long time. There are different kinds of grief, but everyone has to grieve in his or her own way. And I believe that poetry gives us a way to start thinking through our feelings and to articulate our feelings. and We haven't done much of that during this tremendous year of crisis. And I think that there's gonna come a reckoning. There's a tremendous amount of anguish. There's a tremendous amount of loss. There's a lot of mental illness. And I believe that poetry can help us address these wounds and therefore help to heal us.
0: I've heard you say that America is immature in handling the <laughs> idea of grief. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, this is a personal belief of mine. I don't know if everyone shares it. I believe that we're immature about grief because we want to box it up in the stages um, and get rid of it. And that it's not that Americans don't recognize that there are that people have griefs, but it makes them very uncomfortable. And they want to get over it as fast as possible so that as soon as you start, as soon as something happens terribly, terrible, either individually or collectively to a family or to a group, everyone starts talking about healing right away. And I believe that that's sort of rushed. It's not that I'm not for healing. I'm all for it. Um, But I believe that before you can heal, you have to mourn. And I believe that this sort of Optimism, which so much, which has helped us so much as, as as a country, also can elide over the deeper feelings that people have, and so ver- therefore people take these feelings and go underground with them, um, because no one wants to hear about them, and um, I, d- I don't think that's a that's that's a comfortable way for people. I don't think it's a helpful way, and, and 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 I think the culture as a whole wants to move on so quickly that it makes it difficult for individuals. To grieve properly.
0: So sad poems console us. You know, there's that short story by Chekhov titled Misery. The subtitle is To Whom Shall I Tell My Grief? And really, there's nothing from the protagonist of that story to say about the death of his son. He's cut off in mid-sentence every time he tries to articulate anything about his grief. Um, but it is hard to imagine what he what he'd even say if he had half a chance. How he might complete a thought about the loss of his own son, and what we learn as readers is that that short story it's an extremely short story. That short story itself is what stands is what can replace when there are no words when this incommunicable thing is there before us and is there to process, the story becomes the way to communicate the grief. And I kept thinking about that story as I read the poems here, about the ways that poetry stands in for all of the things that we maybe can't even begin to process, but certainly all of the things that we ourselves cannot say yet or even begin to understand yet. How do sad poems console us? First of all,
1: that was very beautifully put. Um, and um I, I'm very glad you reference, you, you make a reference to that extraordinary Chekhov story, because you remember at the end of the story that the, the coachman ends up talking to his horse. Yes. Because the horse is the only the horse is the only one that will the horse is the only one that will listen. Um but we we hear the story as well through the short story by Chekhov. And I believe that poets are not uncomfortable with grief. They're willing to take it on directly to articulate their own feelings and to try and transform them. And I believe that, I mean, it's odd, but sad, very sad poems or poems of terrible loneliness never make me feel unbelievably sad um, or unbelievably lonely. They articulate something and I feel somehow companion. Let me give you an example. When um, John Clare is in a mental hospital and writes in the 19th century, I am yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes. He's saying there that he's consuming his own woes, but the fact that he makes it rhyme, the fact that he articulates it in a kind of rhythm suggests that he does ultimately believe that there is some reader to whom he can communicate. We become the listeners to that poem, even if we're not alive at the same time as John Clare. There's a kind of hopefulness in the communication because language is social. And so however terrible the feelings or isolated the feelings, they do name something. And they name something for us. I've always thought that there's something... Um, of great dignity in poetry um, in the way in which it, and even generosity in the sense of the way in which people take their own feelings and turn them into something for other people to know about and to articulate. And I'm sure you've had the same feeling that I've had sometimes that I have a feeling, but I don't know how to articulate it. And when I read a poem, it gives me a language for what I myself felt that's why you sometimes feel almost as if you're writing the poems to which you are actually only reading
0: i so appreciate this idea and it also makes me think about um this question my students sometimes ask me in in a, let's say a survey course in in intro to fiction they'll say are all the stories going to be sad as if that's all there is to them. So I appreciate this idea from you. And also another thing that you said, which is that these poems are made things, that they are certainly human documents by real people for whom these subjects are very meaningful, but that these are works of art. These are made things that have been created with the reader or the listener in mind. And I do think that that is a, a form of optimism on the part of the poet. I, I do agree with that.
1: These are not diary entries. It's fine to write a diary entry or to have your feelings unto yourself or to, or to share them with a therapist. Um, but poetry is something else. Um, that is the oldest word for, for poetry in Greek is poesis, which means making. And a poem is, is, is a made thing. A poet is a maker and a poem is a made thing. Um, In writing about these poems in um, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart, the trick for me, um, or the goal for me, was to write about them as human documents, because these are not just language games. People are writing about things that are very meaningful to them. At the same time, to honor them as works of art, because they're not just mere expressions of feeling, they are transformations of feeling that use language in powerful ways. And as poems, they work as poems. And so you try and think through what they are as made things, creative things, um, and still stay true to the human being who made them.
0: Yes, I've, I've also heard you say that it's not just elegies that express our sorrow or that attempt to convey something, or that attempt to fill something, this bottomless, gaping thing that can never be filled, but that still can manage to say perhaps what we would think is inexpressible. Um, I've heard you discuss the Hebrew scholars of the Hebrew Bible who describe something called wisdom literature, the poetry of wisdom that comes with age, It comes with reflecting on experience. Um, But then there is, as you also said in that particular interview, the brilliant audacity of youth that comes when the poet is young, and they can never uh, hit upon that verve and energy. Again, they're two separate things. And you've said there's never been a culture that did not have poetry in the history of the world. So I think think this is a a very... uh, (laughs) sort of confused way uh, that I'm trying to express this idea of how we can see poetry as this made thing and appreciate it as not a diary entry, not just this sort of, this is how I feel and let me vent to you what I'm thinking about, but that there is reflection, that there is this absence of a kind of a treacle that could undermine um, the work. Um, but also that we need to pay attention to poetry. Um, And I think, too, that this goes, I think this is in keeping with this idea of uh, America's immaturity with the idea of grief. I think, too, that America has a problem with um, attention span and with uh, (laughs) paying attention to poetry or paying attention to um, literature uh, so this is something that I worry about for poetry sometimes I feel like poetry was is my first love and I renounced it because I'm a terrible poet and I love it too much to be a terrible poet. but I find that it would be so easy to um, borrow a sense of drama from a work that's about sorrow and just sort of accept it as a as a great poem simply because it is about sorrow and that really short changes uh the reader and, and you're up
1: many you're, sorry you bring up so many things um about the culture and about poetry's place in it and I, i'm very struck by your insights um th- that your recognition that it's as if the whole culture has a attention deficit disorder um And it's not as if, it's not only that we don't pay attention to poetry, we don't pay attention to our interior lives. And all of art, music, um, visual art, refers to our, you know, points to our interior lives and reflection. And I, I like what you're saying about the vivacity of youth and the wisdom of age, and that both of those things bring something very important to poetry about our inner lives. The excitement of language, um, the excitement of fresh insight, and the thoughtfulness that comes with experience. And of course, as you know, in America we don't we don't care much about that kind of wisdom. We don't value it very much. We tend to shunt older people aside, um, whereas it's all there in in the kind of literature and what you're, I think, w- wisely referring to as 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 wisdom literature and what that what that means for our interior lives um i guess i would say that one other thing related to what you're talking about and that's that the poetry of sorrow is not as far removed from the poetry of joy as one might think the in in every poetry there is a poetry of lamentation but there's also a poetry of ecstasy the reason I think these are related or parts of the same thing is that the poetry of lamentation is really related to the fact that we live in time and that we're mortal and that things we love pass, not just people, but everything and experience. And the poetry tries to nail these things down to hold on to them as they go. I would say the, the poetry of sorrow is the poetry of, 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 of the loss, the poetry of the lament for what's gone and past. The poetry of joy is the poetry that rejoices in what we have now because it is also passing. It's excitement about naming all the things of the world that exist because they exist. But there's also an awareness in this joy um, that we live in time um, and that we're trying to celebrate something right now. So in a way, the poetry of celebration and the poetry of lamentation are not as far removed from each other as as one
0: might think. You understand, I know this, and and you've said this in a variety of different ways over the years, that a great writer must be a great reader. A great poet is also a a great reader of poetry, and I think that has a lot to do with what we're talking about, Um, but also to be discerning in, in the things that we read, to read widely and to read... Uh, deeply. And this is another thing that I appreciate about this collection, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. These are not just poems by American writers. We see here, two poems in translation. And this goes to to what you discovered in the poetry of the Eastern Europeans and uh, Latin American poets and what you have called uh, their way of, quote, coming to grips with suffering that is not generally present uh, maybe not so fully present in American uh, poetry, certainly not in the way that it spoke to you as you were studying uh, poetry um, and learning from some of these other authors. So I was very, very happy to see uh, such a wide-ranging collection, so many different poems from so many different poets from so many different places. I really appreciate that about this book
1: we're part of the world too. And there may be island poetries, but American poetry is not one of them. And, and, and that is our poetry is in more, more in conversation with other poetries than people re- generally recognize. And I believe that because, there, because poetry exists everywhere in the world, um, there are different sensibilities and different cultures and different poets can teach us different things. Now, even though we're hearing them in, in, in foreign languages, languages we don't necessarily know and reading them in translation there are still sensibilities and feelings and ways of thinking about experience that we haven't necessarily recognized here on our shores and so it seems to me that in turning to the human record it just seems natural to me to seek out the art from other places as well to enhance our sense of what human experiences and sometimes these experiences teach us what, what's different than us but very often they teach us what we recognize in ourselves and your sense of um, that i share is that because many of the poets come from small countries that have been initiated into history in ways that that we didn't always understand in america there's a sense of an awareness of other people and a sense of the the collective or a conversation with the collective or a feeling about not just one's own suffering, but the suffering of other people too. And it seems to me really important that we bring the suffering of other people into, in, into poetry, into American poetry, but into poetry in general, so that the poet speaks for himself or herself, um, but also for others. And so in, in representing different kinds of grief, it seemed important to me to recognize that it's not just individual sorrows, but also collective sorrows and communal sorrows that people feel and that poets try to articulate um, for their cultures.
0: I appreciate that very much. And the way that the more specific a detail is, the more universally appreciated it can be. Um, And yet we do see these other poems. I'm I'm thinking, for instance, of even Boland's poem, Quarantine, um, even Boland, who who passed away in April of 2020, um, but this poem is about the Irish famine that killed more than a million people in Ireland between 1845 and 18, 1852. And yet, I can look at a poem like that today in 2021, and of course think about our own situation with quarantine and our own situation with with the uh, with the COVID 19 pandemic. But it also makes me, all of this also makes me think about this New Yorker piece about you in 2014 when Gabriel was published. This is the book-length poem that you wrote as you faced the loss of your son. And I, I remember reading in that piece something that you'd said to Alec Wilkinson. Um, he wrote that you had read the work of Hopkins and you were moved by the, quote, terrible sonnets six poems that Hopkins wrote between 1885 and 1886 during a spiritual crisis. And I was struck by this idea, how how personal that was to Hopkins and how it, it influenced you all these years later about a completely separate, a very different kind of crisis. And the idea that, quote, the feelings are so desolate The Despair is Tremendous, you said. When I read them, I didn't feel more lonely. I felt less lonely. And that's what I kept coming to as I read 100 Poems to Break Your Heart, as I thought about the pandemic, as I thought about, oh, the the terrible weather event that we had in Texas in February where people actually died because of what happened here with the power outages after it snowed um and so many other things reading about you reading uh the poems like quarantine that is the point that when we read them we don't feel more lonely we feel less lonely
1: this is one of the miracles of poetry that beginning with hopkins a poet in Writing an English poet, an Anglican writing from Ireland um, in the last century, in the two, you know, more than a century ago now, um, can be writing out of his own spiritual crisis and make sonnets that, you know, so many decades later, a whole lifetime, a country away, can speak to you and name your own feelings and give you comfort. That, that, that's one of the sort of astonishing things about poetry from other periods, that it can speak to us and speak to our own, speak to our own lives. The Van Bolen poem that you mentioned is so startling because it's called Quarantine. And um, it, as you say, it's written out of the Irish famine. In that poem, there's the most extraordinary image of two people a husband and a wife and the husband carrying his wife across the countryside. They're both fevered. They're both dying and they're going back to their home and they get to their home, which is cold and their bodies are discovered the next day. But the husband has taken his wife's feet and put them against his chest. And they died in this position as if she could try to, as if he tried to warm her, with his, with his body. This seems to me such an extraordinary gesture and feeling of human connection that it's, it's so sad, but it's also so riveting and speaks to a kind of privacy and feeling that can sometimes exist between two people that is very sad, but also very, very, very heartening. Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season of the worst year of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking. They were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that west and west and north until at nightfall, Under freezing stars, they arrived. In the morning, they were both found dead, of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. But her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There's no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There's only time for this merciless inventory, their death together in the winter of 1847, also what they suffered, how they lived, and what there is between a man and woman, and in which darkness it can best be proved. The last thing I want to that you brought up is my my poem for Gabriel. And 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 in in trying to write a, in, in suffering my own loss, in suffering my own grief, in writing a book-length poem from a father's point of view about his about a son telling Gabriel's story, I also kept thinking that I wanted to find a way to indicate to others that although I was trying to honor my own story and tell Gabriel's story, I was also aware that I'm not the only person that this has happened to, that this has happened to other people too. And in fact, other people have suffered more, far worse. And that as a result, I kept trying to think through how to encapsulate that. And I ended up with a kind of chorus in the poem of other poets who'd lost children and writing about them um, and how they had also tried to deal with their grief and write poems. And that, that sense of other poets writing about their children um, in their grief was a kind of comfort to me and a kind of model to me for how I might think through my own sadness and my own story and trying to tell my son's story. And so here the, the other poets helped me to think through my own experience. And I wanted to honor that experience, um, at the same time, make a work of art. And these other poets helped me find the way.
0: Was Wordsworth one of those poets in, with Surprise by Joy?
1: Yes, and that's probably, that's the unspoken reason that I begin 100 Poems to Break Your Heart with, um, with Wordsworth's poem, because one of the startling things about the Wordsworth poem is that his—it's a poem of joy as well, because he's excited by something he sees, and it's—it's it's very striking that w- Wordsworth's great poem of joy is also a great poem of sorrow. Wordsworth never titled this poem; it goes—the title goes by the first line, um, and he said it was suggested by my daughter Catherine long after her death. Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turn to share the transport. Oh, with whom but thee, deep buried in the silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find. Love, faithful love, recall thee to my mind. But how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, had I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss. That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only, when I stood forlorn, knowing my heart's best treasure was no more, that neither present time nor years unborn could to my sight that heavenly face restore.
0: Are there another hundred poems out there? I kept thinking about how can Edward Hirsch possibly settle on only a hundred poems? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I, it was actually that part was very difficult. Um, but it was also difficult. I mean if I was just choosing poems, it would have been much easier to choose 200. But since I was also writing about them, I sometimes thought, Maybe I should call this book 50 poems to break your heart. Because, <laughs> because 100 poems is really a lot to write about. So um, these are not even my 100 favorite poems necessarily. and They're not the, certainly not the only 100 poems that speak to me. Um, there are many, many others from many other poetries and languages and time periods. Um, there were sort of a couple of requirements. One it had to be a poem that I had something to say about. And then it also had to be a poem that I could say something about that would be meaningful in three to five pages and that I could include. I mean, it wasn't gonna be reasonable to write, say about Paradise Lost. (laughs) Um, So um, the poems that I ended up choosing, I mean, I love all the poems that I've chosen, but I love many other poems that I could not choose that I did not choose because I could not encapsulate what I had to say about them in a reason in a, in a, in a reasonable length, and um, and so I I had to settle where I could. But also, I I was trying to be as representative as possible um, of different varieties of grief. So I tried not to keep hitting the same note over and over again. Um, of just elegies or just elegies that someone's writing about a lost child or a lost partner. I I tried to think through the whole range of what people were suffering and how we might address that in in poetry.
0: So interesting, too, to see... um that diversity of of subjects. I mean Degrees of Grey in Phillipsburg is one example of that. It's not about the a loss of a a family member, say. It's but it's still it is still a poem that breaks your heart. I was really um pleasantly surprised when I saw it. it's it's a favorite of mine, so pleasantly surprised when I saw it in the collection and um, read what you wrote about it, and and I think it's a perfect fit um, among all of these other poems that are about different kinds of grief and different different types of loss.
1: You might not think so initially, but it's a poem about, I mean, someone's life has broken down. I mean, in a way, it's a kind of tourist poem. He goes to another town. He goes to Phillipsburg for the day. Um, but the suggestion is that, say, your you know your car's broken down, but your life is broken down too, and there's a sense of tremendous isolation and grayness, a kind of foggy depression in the back of that poem. Uh, that seems to me a kind of a kind of grief that's hard to articulate, hard to acknowledge, hard to recognize. It's because the loss is a little. A, a, a little harder to pinpoint there, although it's real. Although it's it's real, and we've all suffered some more than others from various depressive states. And I think this poem comes out of a personal gloom, um, and then finds just a, a tremendous way to articulate that feeling um, by presenting it within the framework of a Montana town.
0: Yes, and I love what you offer to us by way and it's not an explication. Like this is not a sort of cliffs notes of, you know, <laughs> of poetry for for students to look at. And, you know, Edward Hirsch is gonna help me figure out, you know, Richard Hugo. Um, but it but you give us something to think about um that's helpful to us in looking at the heartbreak, but then looking at more than just the heartbreak. And you say in that particular essay that the speaker in this poem digs in and finds consolation, light. And there's almost even, as you say, a faint tinge of the erotic in his vision of the slender waitress whose hair provides a luminous light on the wall. The world can still be lit from within." And then you say, it turns out that Richard Hugo for all his despair was also a poet of gritty optimism. And in all my years of reading and studying and teaching this poem, I think I came to that fine point, but not in the way that you show us in a book that is about 100 poems to break your heart. I mean, it's, it it was, it's, it's so magical to be able to get these, I don't want to call them lectures, but these sort of stories from you about these poets and their lives and their work and the, the way that they come to the poem and the, the way that we might also consider coming to a poem that's about sorrow.
1: Thank you so much for your you know, responsive reading of the poems and of my essays about the poems, I tried in every case to sort of set the poem up with a kind of biographical and historical story to place it, um, but also to really attend to the poem itself and what it was telling us. And you know, as you know, when you write about a poem, you have to think, and, and when you teach a poem and when you write about a poem, you really have to learn it in another kind of way than when you you might gloss over it when you're reading it. And working through the, the Hugo poem over a, you know, a pretty long period of time, I'd already known the poem pretty well, and I greatly admire Richard Hugo, but I hadn't written about the poem, and I did it when I worked through it. I also worked through my sense of how the poem was actually transforming its feeling. And it surprised me too, to come to the recognition which I think is true that I'd always thought of Hugo as a somewhat as a poet of, of despair um, and dark pessimism but as I looked at those images more and more closely and I looked at the you know the image of the waitress in particular with her red hair that he that he comes to, that he comes to at the end of that poem I began to feel somewhat differently about it um, I felt about it the same way that I feel about William Carlos Williams spring and all, where the roots grip down and begin to awaken. And then I began to feel that there's kind of, there are certain poems in the American grain that really recognize um, the toughness of survival, um, but really do dig in and come out. And that's where I came to the notion of Hugo's idea of, I, I think, his feeling of that There's a gritty optimism in these poems that you don't quite expect, but they are tough and they do come through.
0: Edward Hirsch, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it.
1: I so much appreciate your your responsiveness and your very close reading and your feeling for the poems and my writing about them. That, That to me is a very great honor and I'm deeply
0: appreciative. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Edward Hirsch is the author of 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. He's published 10 books of poetry and 6 books of prose, among them, Gabriel, a Poem, and How to Read and Fall in Love with Poetry. Edward Hirsch has received numerous awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and a MacArthur Fellowship. A longtime professor, Edward Hirsch is currently the president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.